page 483, The A Promised Land, the book by Barack Obama. The presidency changes your time horizons. Rarely do your efforts bear fruit right away. The scale of most problems coming across your desk is too big for that. The factors at play too varied. You learn to measure progress in smaller steps, each of which may take months to accomplish, none of which merit much public notice and to reconcile yourself to the knowledge that your ultimate goal, if ever achieved, may take a year or two or even a full term to realize. Nowhere is this truer than in the conduct of foreign policy. So when in the spring of 2010, we began to see results from some of our major diplomatic initiatives, I felt pretty encouraged. Tim Geithner reported that the Chinese had quietly started letting their currency appreciate in April, I flew back to Prague, where Russian Pre President Medvedev and I held a signing ceremony for the new start, which would cut the number of deployed nuclear warheads by a third on each side with rigorous inspection mechanisms to ensure compliance. And in June, with key notes from both Russia and China, The UN Security Council passed Resolution 1929 imposing unprecedented new sanctions on Iran, including a ban on weapons sales, a suspension of new international financial activities by Iranian banks and a broad mandate to bar any commerce that could help Iran expand its nuclear weapons program. It would take a couple of years for Iran to feel the full effects, but in combination with a new set of U.S. sanctions, 
we now had the tools we needed to bring Iran's economy to a halt unless and until it agreed to negotiate. It also gave me a powerful rationale for counseling patients in conversations with Israelis and others who saw the nuclear issue as a handy excuse for a U.S.-Iranian military confrontation. Getting Russia and China on board had been a team effort. Hillary and Susan Rice spent countless hours cajoling, charming, and occasionally threatening their Russian and Chinese counterparts, McFall, Burns, and Samore. Samore all provided critical, strategic, and technical support, helping us knock down or work around whatever objectives the Russian and Chinese negotiators might present. And my relationship with Medvedev proved decisive in getting the sanctions finally in place on the margins of each international summit I attended. He and I carved out time to work through log jams in the negotiations as we got closer to the security Council vote, it seemed as if we talked by phone once a week. Our ears are getting sore. He joked toward the end of our end of one marathon session. Time and again, Medvedev ended up going further than either Burns or McFall had thought possible, given Moscow's long-standing ties to Iran and the millions that will, that well-connected Russian arms manufacturers stood to lose once the new sanctions went into effect. On June 9th, the day of the Security Council vote, Medvedev surprised us once again by announcing the cancellation of S-300 missile cells to Iran, a reversal not only of his previous position, but also of Putin's to offset some of Russia's losses, we agreed to lift 
existing sanctions on several Russian firms that had previously sold arms to Iran. I also committed to speed up negotiations on Russia's belated entry into the WTO still by aligning with us on Iran, Medvedev showed himself willing to stake his presidency on a closer relationship with the United States, a promising sign for future collaboration on our other international priorities. I told Ram, quote, so long as Putin doesn't cut him off at the knees, close quote. The passage of sanctions, the signing of the new start, some movement by China on improving its trade practices. These did not qualify as a world-changing victories. Certainly none of them merited a Nobel Prize. Although, had they happened eight or nine months earlier, I might have felt a little less sheepish about receiving the award. At most, these were building blocks, steps on a long and uncharted road. Could we create a nuclear-free future? Would we, would we prevent another war in the Middle East? Was there a way to coexist peacefully with our formidable rivals? None of us knew the answers, but for the moment at least, it felt like we were on the path forward. Thank you for listening. Chapter 21, page 486, A Promised Land, by Barack Obama. At dinner one night, Malia asked me what I was going to do about tigers. What do you mean, sweetie? Well, you know... They're my favorite animal, right? Years earlier, during our annual Christmas visit to Hawaii, my sister Maya had taken a then four-year-old Malia to the Honolulu Zoo. It was a small but 
charming place tucked into the corner of Kapi Olane Park near Diamond Head. As a kid, I'd spend hours there climbing the banyan trees, feeding the pigeons that waddled through the grass, howling at the long-limbed gibbons high up in the bamboo rafters. Malia had been captivated by one of the tigers during the visit, and her auntie had bought her a small stealth version of the great cat at the gift shop. Quote, tiger, quote, had fat paws, a round belly, and a inscrutable Mona Lisa smile, and he and Malia became inseparable, though by the time we got to the White House, his fur was a little worse for wear, having survived food spills, several near losses during sleepovers, multiple washings, and a brief kidnapping at the hands of a mischievous cousin. I had a soft spot for Tiger. Well, Malia continued, I did a report about tigers for school, and they're losing their habitat because people are cutting down the forest. And it's getting worse because the planet's getting warmer from pollution. Plus, people kill them and sell their fur and bones and stuff. So tigers are going extinct, which would be terrible. And since you're the president, you should try to save them. Close quote. Sasha chimed in. You should do something, Daddy. Close quote. <laughs> I looked at Michelle, who shrugged. Quote, you are the president, she said. The truth is, I was grateful that my young daughters weren't shy about pointing out the responsibility of the adults around them to help preserve a healthy planet. Although I've lived all my life in cities, many of my best memories involve the outdoors. Some of this is just the product of, an, of my Hawaiian upbringing where hikes through lush mountain forests or afternoons slicing through turquoise waves are a birthright as easy as stepping out your front door. Pleasures that cost nothing belong to no one and were accessible to all. My time in Indonesia, running along terraced paddy fields, as water buffalo glanced up with mud-covered snouts, had reinforced a love of open space. So did my travels in my 20s, a time when, thanks to a lack of attachments and a tolerance for cheap lodgings, 
I'd had the chance to trek through Appalachian trails, paddle a canoe down the Mississippi, and watch the sun rise over the Serengeti. My mother reinforced this affinity for the natural world in the grandeur of its design, the skeleton of a leaf, the labors of an ant colony, the glow of a bleach white moon. She experienced the wonder and humility that others reserved for religious worship and in our youth she'd lectured Maya and me about the damage humans could inflict when they were careless in building cities or drilling oil or throwing away garbage quote pick up that candy wrapper bar Close quote. She pointed out as well how the burdens of such damage most often fell on the poor who had no choice about where to live and could not shield themselves from poisoned air and contaminated water. But if my mother was an environmentalist at heart. I don't remember her ever applying the label to herself. I think it's because she'd spent most of her career working in Indonesia where the dangers of pollution paled in comparison to more immediate risks like hunger for millions of struggling villagers who lived in developing countries, the addition of a coal-fired electrical generator or a new smoke-belching factory often represented their best chance for more income and relief from back-breaking toil. To them, worrying about maintaining pristine landscapes and exotic wildlife was a luxury only Westerners could afford. Quote, you can't save trees by ignoring people, close quote, my mother would say. This notion that for most of humankind, concern about the environment came only after their basic material needs were met, stuck with me. Years later, as a community organizer, I helped mobilize public housing residents to press for the cleanup of asbestos in their neighborhood in the state legislature. (coughs) 
in the state legislature, I was a reliable enough green vote that the League of Conservation Voters endorsed me when I ran for the U.S. Senate once on Capitol Hill, I criticized the Bush administration's efforts to weaken various anti-pollution laws and championed efforts to preserve the Great Lakes. But at no <coughs> but at no stage in my political career had I made environmental issues my calling card, not because I did not consider them important, but because for my constituents, many of whom were working class, poor air quality, or industrial runoff took a back seat to the need for better housing, education, health care, and jobs. I figured somebody else could worry about the trees. The ominous realities of climate change forced a shift in my perspective. Each year, it seemed, the prognosis worsened as an ever-increasing cloud of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases from power plants, factories, cars, trucks, planes, industrial-scale livestock, operations, deforestation, and all the other hallmarks of growth and modernization contributed to record temperature. By the time I was running for president, the clear consensus among scientists was that in the absence of bold coordinated international action to reduce emissions, global temperatures were destined to climb another two degrees Celsius within a few decades. Past that point, the planet could experience an acceleration of melting ice caps, rising oceans, and extreme weather from which there was no return. The human toll of a rapid climate shift was hard to predict, but the best estimates involved a hellish combination of severe coastal flooding, drought, wild fl fires, and hurricanes that 
stood to displace millions of people and overwhelm the capacities of most governments. This, in turn, would increase the risk of global conflict and insect-borne disease. Reading the literature, I pictured caravans of lost souls wandering a cracked earth in search of arable land, regular Katrina-sized catastrophes across every continent, island nations swallowed up by the sea. I wondered what would happen to Hawaii or the great glaciers of Alaska or the city of New Orleans. I imagined Malia, Sasha, and my grandchildren living in a harsher, more dangerous world, stripped of many of the wondrous sights I'd taken for granted growing up. If I aspired to lead the free world, I decided I'd have to make climate change a priority of my campaign and my presidency. But how? Climate change is one of those issues governments are notoriously bad at dealing with, requiring politicians to put in place disruptive, expensive, and unpopular policies now in order to prevent a slow-rolling crisis in the future. Thanks to the work of a few far-sighted leaders like former Vice President Al Gore, whose efforts to educate the public on global warming had garnered a Nobel Peace Prize and who remained active in the fight to mitigate climate change, awareness was slowly growing. Younger, more progressive voters were especially receptive to calls for action. Still, key democratic interest groups, especially the big industrial unions, resisted any environmental measures that might threaten jobs for their members and in polls we conducted in polls we conducted at the start of my campaign the average democrat voter ranked climate change near the bottom of their list of concerns
continuing Republican voters Republican voters were even more skeptical there had been a time when the federal government's role in protecting the environment enjoyed the support of both parties Richard Nixon had worked with a Democratic Congress to create the Environmental Protective Agency, EPA, in 1970. George H.W. Bush championed a strengthening of the Clean Air Act in 1990. But those times had passed as the GOP's electoral base had shifted to the South and the West, where cons conservation efforts had long rankled oil drillers, mining interests, developers, and ranchers. The party had turned environmental protection into another front into another front in the partisans culture war conservatives media outlets portrayed climate change as a job killing hoax hatched by tree-hugging extremists. Big oil funneled millions of dollars into a web of think tanks and public relations firms committed to obscuring the facts about climate change. In contrast to his father, George W. Bush, and members of his administration actively downplayed evidence of a warming planet and refused to engage in international efforts to curb greenhouse gases, despite the fact that for the first half of his presidency, the United States ranked as the world's largest emitter of carbon dioxide. As for congressional Republicans, just acknowledging the reality of human-made climate change invited suspicion from party activists suggesting shifts in policy to deal with it might get you a primary opponent. Quote, we're like pro-life Democrats, close quote, a former Republican senator colleague with a nominally pro-environmental voting record told the told me ruefully one day 
quote, will soon be extinct, close quote. Faced with these realities, my team and I had done our best to highlight climate change during the campaign without costing ourselves too many votes. I came out early in favor of an ambitious, quote, cap and trade, close quote, system to reduce greenhouse gases, but avoided getting into, into details that might give future opponents a juicy target for attack. In speeches, I minimized the conflict between action on climate change and economic growth and made a point of emphasizing emphasizing the non-environmental benefits of improving energy efficiency including its potential to reduce our dependence on foreign oil and in a nod to the political center, I promised and quote all of the above unquote energy policy that would allow for continued development of domestic oil and gas production as America transitioned to clean energy as well as funding for ethanol, clean coal technologies, and nuclear power positions that were unpopular with environmentalists but mattered deeply to swing state constituencies.